Welcome to The Postscript. I'm your host, Brandon Briscoe, and we're here with Pastor Greg Axe of Crest Bible Church and the church history professor at Living Faith Bible Institute. And we've been talking about church history in this episode, talking about some of the content of his book, and uh, we want to share some more of this church history with you. We're going to be talking today about some of the early church fathers and, and just their role in uh, that early, uh, that second century Christianity, that fledgling church, and and who they were, and what were some of the things that they were about, and we're going to learn a little bit about that today. So, Greg, welcome back. Thank you. And uh, so, you know, we know that after the the apostles died, that there were men that, that kind of stepped in there. Some right. of them were disciples mm-hmm. of, of the apostles. Right. Uh, others of them. Uh, came into these roles. We don't even necessarily know how they came into these mm-hmm. roles. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Who were some of these men and uh, and how did they come to be pastors of churches in Rome and Smyrna and Antioch and places yes. like that? One of the most famous, obviously, is a guy by the name of Polycarp, and he was a direct convert disciple of the Apostle John. Mm. Um, Ignatius learned from Polycarp as well. So there's a little bit of a generational history in between that uh, between those guys and many of them were indeed um, disciples of the disciples if you want to call it mm-hmm. that where the multiplication factor was taking place we talked a little bit and I think the last time about a little bit of a void of leadership for a little bit of a time Bef- between the death of the apostles and before the canon of scripture it was a period of 50 to 75 years or so mm-hmm. somewhere in there where you didn't have anybody who could stand up and say, you know, I was with the Lord when he said this. Right. Okay? So it would be, you know, I heard John say, or I heard Polycarp tell me that John said that this, Mm -hmm. okay, and so you're now four or five generations sometimes removed. Uh, And how they got into their positions, I'm just going to simplify it. God rose, brought them to prominence. Mm -hmm. And that would be the simple way to say it. Uh, in a lot of cases, most of those guys are completely unknown, just like in any age of history. The yeah. vast majority of God's people are completely unknown, except to God himself. So, <clears throat> uh, But you have a few guys that stand out, Ignatius, Arrhenius, uh, uh, Papias, um, um, and Polycarp, and there's some of the ones that... Mainly because their, let, their letters were Their preserved. letters are preserved, yeah. yes, and we can read their letters. I have a reprint copy of Polycarp's letter to the Philippian church, 14 chapters, you know, maybe not many more pages than that, Mm -hmm. um, where he writes to the Philippian church in 110 AD, and it's like reading a New Testament epistle. He quotes Mm -hmm. from Paul, he quotes from other authors, he quotes from the Old Testament, just fabulous uh, stuff. Obviously, the influence of Paul, John, Peter, and those guys made itself into the next generation and the next and the next, and a lot of those guys would just rise up to prominence. We'll talk about Polycarp, but, but mm-hmm. one of the names that, that is commonly heard is Clement. Mm-hmm. And um, even likely the same Clement that we read about in Scripture. Maybe you can yes. tell us a little bit about who yeah. Clement was. There's a, a reference in Philippians chapter 4 to a guy named Clement that Paul was familiar with. Uh, that um, could possibly be the Clement of history that we're talking about. We're not mm-hmm. 100% sure, but we we think it's probably uh, the same guy. Uh, one of his problems, if you want to call it that, was he put a little bit too much emphasis on the Bishop of Rome. It fed into a little bit of the um, 
idea that that's where the headquarters of the church should be, mm-hmm. uh, is in the city of Rome. Um, not necessarily the case. Paul right. addresses believers in Rome in his epistle, so there were plenty of them there. Uh, however, when you have exalt this bishop of Rome, that leads into the Catholic Church and the Pope and all that. Sure, and I, so th- I guess that speaks to this kind of this idea, and I think Clement is a good example of this mm-hmm. of someone who, for the most part, you look at their ministry, you look at their doctrine, and you say to yourself, "Man, this guy, he checks out." Mm-hmm. Was probably a great pastor. Yeah, you know, um, but in their writing, maybe left a few areas because this isn't scripture. What they're writing isn't exactly. scripture. Exactly, it's not. It's not divine. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not you know inspired by God, uh, and so you might have there's there's room for error in the writing, obviously. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is a small you know quote mm-hmm. uh, can set forth poor doctrine, yes, and a poor approach. And so like with Clement, you know, uh, an issue of authority. Mm-hmm. Who, who who is the authority putting too much emphasis on the role of the bishop to the neglect of the laity? Right. So maybe talk about the idea a little bit and how that left room for Satan to work. Well, again, with the uh, gap of time between the death of the apostles and the full canonization of Scripture, you have a whole bunch of other things in there. So if Polycarp's letter fits within that, which it does, and somebody's reading that, and then they're reading Paul's epistle, then they're reading somebody else's over here, how would you sort those things? It would take a while to sort through those things to, mm-hmm. to, uh, to determine... Or, or general consensus of what actually is scripture as God is leading mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Can't ever factor God out of that uh, uh, issue. So there'd be a lot of people reading Polycarp's thing and going, this is just awesome stuff. I've read it. It's awesome stuff. Yeah, right. In the middle of it, he makes a statement. Here's what he meant. In Polycarp's letter. Yeah, in Polycarp's yeah. letter. Faith is the mother of us all. Well, Galatians says New Jerusalem is the mother of us all. So now there's a little bit of just, I know what he meant to say. Sure, right. Not that I interviewed him on that old, but um, I know what he meant to say because I read the rest of his letter. Uh, but then that gets, that statements like that get taken and the enemy is very subtle mm-hmm. and very slick. And they start magnifying that statement above others and say, well, if faith is the mother of us all, you can only have one one mother, therefore there's only one church, therefore... yeah. If you're not right. a member of my church, yeah. then you're an athman and we get to kill you. Yeah. So that's where that time, Polycarp never meant that. No. Okay. Uh, Clement never meant those kind of things. Again, you like you said, you study those guys' writings and you look at them. And as far as the essentials of salvation by grace through faith and the finished work of Jesus Christ and the fact that he's coming again to this world and the fact that baptism doesn't save us and those kind of fundamental um, doctrinal um, born-again, Bible-believing issues mm-hmm. permeate through their writings. Right. Yeah. And then a little bit sure. here and a little bit there. Sure. And that little crack, the enemy exploits. Yeah, yeah. And it's, and it's, and it's tough to watch that because you yeah. know that these guys are in some yeah. regards, at least some of them, mm-hmm. are, are heroic in their, pa- in their pastorship. You know? Yeah. I was looking at um, the, uh, Clement's letter to Corinth, mm-hmm. and he's addressing the church and he's addressing two things that I thought were really interesting. He was talking about character and repentance in a, in a very similar way that Paul would. Mm-hmm. He even makes reference to Paul's letters to Corinth, mm-hmm. to, you know, in his letter to Corinth. But then he also talks about the imminency of the return of Jesus Christ. Yes. 
which is a doctrine for so many people that have been has been lost and neglected. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you could talk about uh, some more, maybe about the, the letter to Corinth, or even just more about the uh, the letters that that Ignatius and Polycarp and Clement and these guys were writing. Mm-hmm. Some of the things that really stand out to you as as being important. Yeah, again, all those things are important because they are they line up with biblical um, mm-hmm. principle and biblical concept. And you know, if you're writing to the city of Corinth, uh, you know, Corinth was like Las Vegas. I mean, it was. Right, uh, you know, they, anything goes when the whistle blows in Corinth. That's the place where, uh, you know, First Corinthians, for example, you got Paul reaching out and grabbing the church by its collar and just pounding them in the sure. face over and over about everything they're doing wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. So for Clement to come back later on and write to that church again, probably along the same vein yeah. of you guys are a mess is very instructive knowing that what he is writing to them is solid biblical because it follows the pattern of Paul. And then he'll go into talking about the primacy of the Bishop of Rome over all other churches. Mm-hmm. And that's where it kind of ske- skews And, and with that, you know, it's super interesting. One of the things that you see is the emphasis on the big, wealthy mm-hmm. church. Yeah. So in other words, you've got churches scattered abroad, okay, um, all of them with complete autonomy, mm-hmm. but yet they're looking to the, the big church to make the decisions, and it, and it promotes this false governance mm-hmm. that God never really intended. Maybe mm-hmm. talk about that dynamic as well. God is a God of variety, mm-hmm. and he made all the flowers different colors, and he made all animals different sizes, and, and the... The diversity of God's creation is just a beauty to behold. Well, mm-hmm. he made us all different too. And each individual local assembly uh, has its own unique things. Mm-hmm. We do things at our church that are different than anybody else will do anywhere on planet Earth, mm-hmm. yet we have the same doctrine mm-hmm. of salvation by grace through faith, the authority of God's word, the premillennial second coming of Jesus Christ, those kind of things that are just bedrock solid foundation that you can't get away from. And yet we'll do things differently. Mm-hmm. And God wants it that way. Right, right. Okay? So other cultures in this world think differently and act differently and have different ideas and different customs that are not anti-biblical. They're just different. Right. And so God wants those differences to be highlighted. They, they make the flower bed beautiful right. when they're all different. Okay? Yet they're all flowers. Mm-hmm. Okay? So... Uh, that same thing happens within the church when you have a centralized control from one institution trying to dictate cookie cutter to the rest of the world. You will all be the same as us. Um, that's not that's not how God operates. And so, like you said, these little small independent things that are out there, and we think of churches within these villages. Again, like I said, we're talking about being at home. So we're talking about meeting in public places. We're mm-hmm. talking about going from home to home and yeah. sharing their faith. Churches of 30, 40, 50 yeah. people. Yeah. yeah. And and the average, even today, the average church size of evangelical church in the United States is about 50 people. Mm. So we look at a church of 50 people and we think, oh, that's just a miserable failure. No. That's God using a you know, a, a small group of people to minister to that group of people to, to establish mm-hmm. them and to, and there's certainly, uh, he's certainly with those kind of things. So having 
that within a community like they had in the early church was where most of the activity was taking place anyway. One-on-one sharing their uh, faith, one-on-one sitting down with somebody reading through the Bible and learning and growing their relationship with Christ in small groups. And the big dynamic thing, the bigger it gets sometimes, the more unwieldy it gets. And, right. And But with that, like you can imagine in that, in that time frame, like the void you were talking about mm-hmm. between the apostles and the canonization, you can imagine these pastors in these rural communities looking for authority if they're mm-hmm. not willing to submit to the authority that they have. Like if, right. if they don't fully understand or they can't take the scripture that they have as their primary doctrine and, mm-hmm. and how to move forward and they don't have that script, mm-hmm. then then the tendency might be to, to turn to the big church and the big city mm-hmm. with the guy with all the power and, right. and, and look to him as an authority. And this is where Satan you know, moves. Yeah, he'll, yeah. He'll, he'll find that crack and just like water seeks the sure. crack, it find that crack and exploit it. And we see that even in the world that we live in today where you've got people in all sorts of different places, even here in the United States, but a lot of times around the world where you have a village of a few folks and have come to know the Lord and they have no resources to deal with and just somebody within that village is the guy who's read more bible than anybody else because he's read it for a month right so he's the de facto pastor he's the de facto pastor (laughs) because yeah you have that kind of dynamic take place even in the world today right right and those guys need a lot of help man which i think is part of the beauty of the living faith fellowship is that you know, part of our mission, and I think that this is this is a, a vision and a philosophy that we've had for a really long time that the pastors and the fellowship have had, is that the, one of the best gifts that we can give small churches mm-hmm. uh, all over the world, mm-hmm. wherever, Africa, India, wherever mm-hmm. it may be, is to go and to train their pastors who've already been established. Yes. Is not come in and assert authority. Right. And so uh, I think we've learned a lot from history as, as far as that is concerned. Is mm-hmm. The best thing we can do is just train the people who are already recognized as the key men in, in those places. Yeah. That might be a, a contemporary, uh, practical understanding of that. Exactly. And those guys got into those positions simply because everybody else looked around and went, you seem like you kind of know what you're right. talking about. Yeah. Can you help us out? And He's got what he's got, and he just gives him what he has. Sure. Yeah, that works. And we got to trust the Lord. Yeah. Full of faith in that. Yeah. You know, one of the other things that I wanted to mention uh, before we wrap up is the idea of Gnosticism yes. in the second century, yeah. and, and really even the first century. So Gnosticism is basically this idea of, of hidden knowledge, mm-hmm. um, that all of us have this, well, some people have a hidden spark within them, mm-hmm. and it has to be cultivated by, by seeking hidden knowledge, and it was this weird conglomeration of mysticism mm-hmm. uh, alongside like Christian words right. and Christian semantics. Yes. And so explain to us Gnosticism and its role in the second century and how it had an impact on Christianity and what was happening. What was going on? Well, Gnosticism, basic, the word basically means to know. Mm-hmm. And if a person is ignorant, that means they, and it's not a slur, it just means they lack knowledge in that area. Okay, mm-hmm. If they're agnostic, they claim they have no knowledge in that area. Right. And so a Gnostic is somebody who supposedly has some knowledge that somebody else doesn't have. Mm-hmm. This is the curse of the garden. Ye mm-hmm. shall be as exactly. gods 
yeah. knowing right. good and evil. And it, that, it was the that, selling point. That disease of I know something you don't know has been infested in humanity from the fall of Adam and Eve, and we all want to know something that somebody else doesn't right. know. Uh, I'll give you an uh, example of that. You know, if you hear some bad news, a car accident, a death, or something like that, and you call somebody up and you say, hey, did you hear what happened to Susie? And, and they say, no. You feel like, <laughs> that's true. I get to tell somebody something they didn't know. Right. And you feel superior in doing that. Mm-hmm. And so a Gnostic is somebody who is diving in to find something that nobody else has ever found. Right. I say this all the time. If, if somebody religiously or spiritually or church-wise or whatever comes up to you and says, hey, man, I found something that nobody else has ever seen, mm. run, forest, run. Right. Okay? Right. Uh, because, <laughs> you know, whatever they've seen in the Word of God, others have seen it as well. Yeah. That's yeah. that confirmation of the body. So these Gnostics would come up seeking that deeper knowledge that nobody else w- would, would find. In the process, they perverted the truths of Christianity. And the main area in which they did that was around the deity of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Okay? So they wanted to argue the nuances of that particular ism. The with huge theology. issue. Huge issue. got blown way out of proportion. Way out of proportion. Yeah. So what would happen would be Polycarp, Ignatius, Arrhenius, those other kind of guys that are on our side, or on our team, good men, solid men, would get drawn into that argument mm. and want to defend the faith, which is... Some people need to do that at certain points of time. But basically speaking, to defend the faith just means find somebody that needs Jesus and tell them about sure, it. Okay? Of course, and yeah. grow the church and minister to people who are within the congregation. Yeah. Um, but they wanted to establish the platform of debating these particular topics. Making so, a Mars Hill out of every exactly. situation. Yeah. Okay. They would go and start writing um, counters to the Gnostics, mm-hmm. which were good things. And in the midst of that, slip in a phrase every once in a while that could be taken out of context. Sure, because they were men. Yes. Yeah. And so you're talking about this uh, this idea, this challenge, and we'll talk about this more in the next episode when we start talking about Arianism and things mm-hmm. like that. But this challenge to who, uh, the nature of who God was, was such a big deal to the Gnostics. And there was this thing, uh, docetism. Yeah. Um, maybe explain to us a little bit about what docetism was and why it was so corrupt and, 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 and affected so many people. It's essentially, um, to, to put it into layman terms, a um, Jesus was sort of an apparition kind of thing mm-hmm. where you had the, uh, we, we can't settle on the fact that he was God. We can't settle on the fact that he was man. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. Some people were thinking that he was that he was just an apparition or a vision or an appearance on earth, that he wasn't really human. Mm-hmm. And others are saying, no, 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 he was human, he wasn't God. Well, this is that mystery of incarnation that we, that I don't, people say this all the time, I don't understand how God could become a man. And my yeah. answer to that That's is... That's what my, my seven-year-old asked that yeah, question. My, <laughs> my answer to that is, get in line, I don't either. Right. Okay. I just know yeah. it's true because the Bible says it's true. Right. And and so he's as much God as if he's never been man, and he's as much man as if he's never been God. And you'll never figure it out until you get home to heaven. Well, people are trying to figure it out, and they're coming up with all those sort of isms and, that are trying to explain it. And in the process of trying to explain it, they muddy it up. Right. It's 
the the corruption of Grecian thought, yes, um, and the and the obsession with knowledge creeping into and corrupting what should be uh, a spiritual idea, mm-hmm. and so they want to be able to explain it away because that well again that makes them feel smarter and and yes. like they've got some. some I know something right, you don't right, know, right? Therefore, I am superior. Sure, and it, that is a disease. Mm-hmm. And we see that carry on, and it begins by the time we get to the third century. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and uh, the shifts that are taking place in Rome in terms of power, mm-hmm. the void in power, right? Mm-hmm. There's voids right. always set us up for something. Yes. So there's a vacuum of power. Nature abhors a vacuum. And then Constantine comes into that role. Mm-hmm. That's what we'll be talking about yeah. in the next episode is, is how things begin to change and all those doctrines begin to in- infiltrate the church right. during that time period right. of the third century. So. Thank you for joining us in this episode of The Postscript. We hope that you'll join us next week as we begin a conversation about the third century and and the birth of the Catholic Church. I want to thank Greg for being here and, and having this conversation. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Postscript. If you've got questions about Living Faith Bible Institute or The Postscript Show, please visit lfbi.org. Please join us next week for another episode.